Hello, my good people, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. I am Dr. Jay Fitz, and I also have with me Dr. Wendell Cole. All right, guys, we are back at it, and we have another great talk in store for you guys. Uh, this one's probably going to be a little funny, uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let... I'm going to let Dr. Cole kind of just go ahead and introduce things, and we'll tell you a little bit more about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, guys. We have a, we have a good uh, episode for you all today. We're talking about femur fractures. And the uh, funny thing, when we actually made this episode, we will say we were juniors. We were, you know, a little early in our uh, orthopedic career. Pretty uh, early, Dr. guys. Pretty, pretty early. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dr. Bernstein asked us a couple questions here that we didn't necessarily know the answer to, but it was, uh, it was great. It was a learning experience. Definitely just kept it in. I know um, I, I had a few laughs um, going back and editing this episode. Uh, but let me tell you guys a little bit more about our guest, Dr. Mitchell Bernstein, who we have with us. He is an orthopedic traumatologist. He did his medical school at Chicago, at Chicago Medical School. Did his residency at McGill University um, up in Montreal, in Canada, and is um, still practicing now in, in, in Canada. And I actually met him during our AO basic course. We actually go there as interns. And I met him and he was part of my group, one of our group leaders. And uh, he did a great job, you know, was very thorough with his explanations, a really fun uh, person to be around, a really fun person to hang around um, and learn things from. So really enjoyed making this episode, really enjoyed listening to it, editing it. So I'm hoping you all enjoy, um, enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we're pleasure to be here. To have you here. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I remember I, I enjoyed, you know, I met you at AO Basic in our, at our recent, uh, in our recent course in San Diego. And I enjoyed uh, having you as a lecturer and uh, having you as our group discussion. So I figured it'd be great to come on here and, and talk and uh, really look forward to talking with you today. Thank you. You were, uh, Clearly, uh, one of the best participants uh, <laughs> at the course, oh. and uh, you were you. A lot of the faculty were discussing how phenomenal you were. Actually, <laughs> oh, I, I hope so. I hope so. That that'd be nice. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now, um, I don't know, Dr. Burson. He didn't pay you to say that, did he? I don't know. No, this is. Uh, <laughs> I cannot discuss the conflicts at this point. <laughs> stick. Let's stick with the topic here. All right. So, so you know, we typically start off asking just a couple questions, you know, just getting to know you as a person. And, uh, you know, the first thing I'll actually start off with is, uh, you know, so what actually made you want to be a, you know, a teacher and instructor at the AO basic trauma course or, you know, in general? Uh, so the AO, AO course <clears throat> or becoming AO faculty has been really phenomenal for me because basically uh, every time I go to a course, I actually learn myself. So you're, you know, you're with friends, colleagues, mentors, and eventually you get to be a mentor, but you, you do a lot of faculty development. They teach you how to be a better educator. You can, uh, speak to your colleagues about cases, uh, difficult cases, challenging problems. So <clears throat> besides just your passion for teaching, it, um, it's really phenomenal just for you know, career development. 
All right. Well, that sounds pretty good. So on kind of somewhat on that same type of uh, subject, why did you choose trauma as a whole to go into as a specialist? So I, I like I like complicated problems. I don't know why, but I like complicated problems. I thought trauma was the the best subspecialty that would allow me to deal with patients that had complicated problems. Trauma, I think, lends itself to thinking. Uh, it's different surgery every time. You know, these patients come in with devastating injuries, and then there you are to try to help them get back to. Uh, what they were before the injury. So it's it's something that you could take, um, you know, very seriously and, and have that motivate you to be really an expert in your field. So, so that's why. Awesome. Awesome. And for the last question, we tend to ask, uh, you know, something outside of orthopedics. So what are some of your uh, interests outside of ortho? Um, I like accounting, believe it or not. I like law and I like um, economics, economics, economics. <laughs> um, so I'm very interested in uh, how the healthcare system works. I'm also interested. I also like cycling and uh, hanging out with the family. Oh, nice! My, uh, I have uh, my my significant other. She she really is into cycling. Are, are we talking about like the, at the gym, kind of the, the, the like the class? Or is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about both. I mean, I think I, I like outdoor cycling okay. a little bit better just cause you, you know, you're out there for two, three hours and you really can decompress out there. It's like a form of meditation. Well, I suggest keep doing it. Just the other day I had this guy, 81 year old guy came in with an ankle fracture. He say he, I mean, he does like 50 miles every so often, you know, a couple times a week. And I mean, he, he came in, he got his ankle fracture. This will tell you a lot right here. He got his ankle fracture from playing volleyball. He said he ran into uh, somebody playing volleyball. So it's good for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 80 years old. Yeah. I he was like 81. It. Healthiest patient on my list right now. All right. Uh, I like it. I do. Well, uh, perfect, man. So let's, uh, let's hop into the topic of the day. Today we're going to talk about some diaphyseal femur fractures. Uh, and we always kind of just like to start off with a case and then we'll, we'll kind of walk through it. So uh, let's say we have a 35-year-old patient who comes in after a motorcycle collision. Uh, he's coming in with right thigh pain, has an obvious deformity about that right thigh. Uh, what are some things that we want to go ahead and have on our minds? Say we get this call, you know, at one, two in the morning or whatever time. What are some of the things that we want to have on our mind? And when we see this patient, what are some of the things we kind of want to start to think of? So, so number one in trauma, it always holds true. You want to make sure the patient is okay and alive. So, so the way to do that typically in a trauma scenario is what's called the ATLS protocol. So, you know, if you're taking an oral exam or actually taking care of patients uh, in front of you, you want to make sure you're make yourself aware of uh, the ATLS algorithm. So that's the first thing you want to make sure. You want to make sure the patient's breathing. There's not other associated injuries. Um, and they, they don't have to be musculoskeletal injuries only. Again, you want to make sure the patient doesn't have a brain injury, chest injury, et cetera. So that's basically the first thing I would, uh, I would look at. 
And, and so once you do that, you know, we go in there, GCS is 15, they're up, they're talking to you, but, you know, they're just still complaining of pain. Uh, what are some of the things that we want to kind of key in it on when we start to do it like physical exam? So you, you want to try to get yourself focused initially away from his obvious deformed femur. So, you know, you mentioned, especially when presenting the case to me, you said he has an obvious deformity. So the problem with that is if you're either a novice examiner, you know, your junior resident, you don't want to focus on the obvious things because that, that, that's easy to do, right? If it's an obvious deformity, you're going right to it. So what I would suggest is, you know, for a minute or two, don't focus on the obvious deformity and then make sure he doesn't have any other injuries. You know, that's what I would do first. So you're, you're, you're palpating other parts of his body, the entire body and make sure nothing else hurts him. And then you can focus on his limb that's injured. Absolutely. Well, I like that idea. I think, uh, like you said, I think that's a huge thing that I still to this day, I have to make a point. I have to make a point to myself to, hey, even though all this, you know, it's open over there and it's clearly broken, let's let's not go to that that part until last, <clears throat> just to make sure you don't lose this. That's right? exactly that's an open fracture is very easy to deal with, right? You know, an open femur fracture, you're going to deal with it. That that algorithm is very easy for you to do. Anyone can learn that. The art of it is making sure it's not an open femur with a knee dislocation. Hmm. open femur with a vascular injury, open femur with a contralateral calcaneus fracture. You know, that that's what, what will make sure you take care of your patients well. Okay. But, all right, so I think that's a huge point to, to not miss out. And say when we finally do get to that that obvious deformity, what are some of the things that you, you kind of look for just on a physical exam for this type of patient? So you want to make sure there's no open wounds. So you got to look circumferentially, make sure he's appropriately disrobed. You know, you want to make sure the patient has their uh, garments taken off. So that rules out if it's an open injury. You want to check for compartments regardless of of, uh, an extremity that you think has a low incidence of compartment syndrome. You still want to check for compartment syndrome. And that basically entails palpation, and if a patient has a GCS score that allows for assessment of pain, make sure the patient doesn't have too much pain for what you would expect. And then you want to check the vascular status of the limb. That's by palpating pulses. And then check the neurologic status of the limb by checking uh, known uh, nerve function in the foot in this case. So say, you know, we do our physical exam, his nerves are intact. Um, now, what type of imaging do you want your, say, for example, you have a resident coming to you and, and saying, you know, this is what we have. What is the imaging that must be obtained? And what are you looking for exactly on this, on this different imaging? What imaging would you want? Am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to throw back a <laughs> oh, question? Dude, you doing the boomerang here. I like the um, boomerang. I like it. <laughs> well, okay, I'll answer the question. Why not? So, um, of course, we want full-length femur films. We want the joint above and the joint below, you know, the real question I had is how often are you getting uh, CT scans in patients that have, you know, femur fractures? That's, that's what I wanted to get your opinion. on. Okay. Okay. So what are you getting a CT scan for? Or what are you getting a CT scan of? You're asking, are, are we getting a CT scan of the whole femur? Exactly. Yeah. So how, how often are you getting a CT scan of the femur? You know, 
in these zero things. zero time well, why are you getting a ct scan mm -hmm. of the femur is the question so say you had a concern for a femoral neck fracture you had a concern of of um, some other occult fracture is there is there a time to get a ct scan okay so that's a good question it's a fair question so again you any anything we do you want to get a sense of what the you know like why you're getting the test so <clears throat> i wouldn't order a ct scan of the femur the question really is, should we be getting preoperative CT scans of the femoral neck to rule out a femoral neck fracture? Um, so I don't, I don't routinely do that. Um, I think x-rays are sufficient. Um, with that said, some of these patients, if they have a CT scan, of their chest, abdomen, pelvis that usually includes cuts through the femoral necks on both sides. So you, it behooves you to actually look through them to make sure there isn't a femoral neck fracture. But but part of part of your preoperative planning is intraoperatively making sure you check also at the end of the case if there is a femoral neck fracture. Okay, awesome. So that's a, a good way to move on to the next part. So we say we, we've gotten the appropriate images at this point. We've looked at the x-rays. We decided we don't need a CT for this. No, no, no way that we're going to get that right now. We got the appropriate x-rays. <laughs> we got the pelvis, the full femur, the knee. Um, as far as treatment, where do we go from here? We, for, we can say for our particular case that it is a mid-shaft femur fracture, closed mid-shaft femur fracture. And, um, you know, we can kind of, go through how how your approach would change depending on if it was a little bit more proximal versus distal um, depending on where that fracture is so so a, a mid daphyseal fracture for a trauma surgeon is a emo, emotionally pleasant case hmm. uh pretty easy relatively speaking nothing's easy but relatively easy at least emotionally um, and that's treated with an intramedullary nail that's statically locked and reamed, I would say, almost all the time. Now, are you going, what, what makes your decision versus going a retrograde versus uh, anterior grade? And for those that may not exactly know the benefits of reaming, what can you kind of touch on um, why reaming and kind of what that does for your fixation and, uh, and for healing? So uh, going anagrade versus retrograde is, I would say, a surgeon preference. Um, you know, surgeons will argue uh, retrograde nails are better because you don't have hip pain. Surgeons who like anagrade nailings argue, well, I don't like to go through the knee joint and potentially damage the articular surface of the knee joint. Uh, so it's it, it's supported both ways, if you have a mid-daphyseal fracture, go anagrade or retrograde. With that said, I prefer anagrade always, unless there's a reason to go retrograde. Uh, reaming um, increases the size of the nail that you can use, right? So reaming basically um, opens the intramedullary canal in a you know cylindrical fashion to accommodate the size of the nail. We typically ream one millimeter above the definitive implant. Some surgeons ream one and a half millimeters uh, above the uh, definitive implant. 
And can you can you walk us kind of through interrogate nailing like you know some of the basics, some of the things people should know as far as like piriformis start versus you know greater trochanteric star and, and the difference between the two and you know some of those specialized nails. So you're right. There's there's two nails that has to do with the start point. Both star points need to get you into the medullary canal. So the advantage of a piriformis start is that true or false j fits okay this is for j true or false j fits is the piriformis fossa collinear with the medullary canal of the femur uh yeah i I don't want to put them on the spot here is this okay to do it's great i'm loving it i'll take that uh, is it collinear? <laughs> is it collinear? I'm gonna say that uh, not exactly, but it's more collinear than say if you were going towards uh, versus like the uh, some kind of like a greater stroke starting point. I think you you're a little bit more in line with the actual canal that way. So I don't know. That, okay. But, so so I'm not gonna because are you a millennial? Because you're a millennial. <laughs> I'm not gonna say you're wrong. Okay. I'm not gonna say you're wrong, but. What I would have preferred you said was it's exactly collinear with the medullary canal. There you go. <laughs> See how I frame that? Because I don't, you know, millennials, you can't be too aggressive with that. <laughs> so, so the piriformis fossa is collinear with the medullary canal. So it's a straight shot. So in that sense, it's, quote, easier to get your alignment or some components of your alignment the greater trochanter entry point is off axis. And that's why the nails for a greater trochanter are bent at the top, right? To accommodate the fact that you're starting off axis, like a tibial nail. So the greater trochanter nails are popular because they're said to be easier to actually get your starting point. That's why some surgeons prefer a greater trochanter starting point uh, the pro the the downside is it's not collinear with the canal and therefore can be more difficult in certain fracture patterns such as subtrochanteric fractures to get your uh, coronal alignment especially uh, accurate. Okay. Uh, so Jay, Jay, I apologize about putting you on the spot. I feel bad. <laughs> I, I kind of like He's it. He's okay. I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I shine in, in moments like these. It's fine. The- there we go. There we go. I was born for this. No, but really. So, okay, we just kind of went through, you know, the starting point. Is what's in your opinion, what's some of the things that's going to lead you down, you know, going greater trope versus piriformis, or is there just one that you prefer at all times? I, I always prefer a piriformis fossa entry point nail, just because I think, you know, I'm I'm focused more on the you know, the accurate alignment. And I just think it's easier to ensure that the femur is aligned, especially the, the AP angulation, if you use a straight shot. Now, if you have a patient, say BMI 55, is it, what what's, what are the difficulties, I guess, in still doing a piriformis start you know i was reading it was saying that. okay yeah that that's a very good question very good question so at that point you you need to position the patient 
such that you can actually get access to the starting point. In, in those cases, your, your, your skin uh, incision for your starting wire needs to be extremely proximal. So if your patient's not positioned or draped appropriately, you won't be able to get the starting point. So it can be very challenging. And, and the other option is you can go retrograde. You know, so if you have a patient who has a big, big, big BMI or large BMI, large BMI, I think large BMI, high number. Large BMI, high BMI, BMI of 55. Now, a relative indication for a retrograde nail would be that. So you could go retrograde um, and that could help you uh, stabilize the fracture. But yes, that's also an indication where a greater trochanter starting point may be uh, easier, although still will be challenging. Now, one of the things I wanted to just quickly touch on regarding the anterior grade nail before we get to the retrograde is, you know, we're in that, you know, they, they have these specialized nails that have a lateral proximal bend. Can you kind of describe like the function or, you know, what the use of that is when the, when, you know, the surgeon is using that greater choke, choke anteric start? So again, because you're, you're not, entering the femur collinear with the canal and because you're off axis the nail has to be bent right so so the nail is bent to accommodate for the fact that you're not entering through the piriformis fossa so it typically has a bend you know of seven to eleven degrees depending on the manufacturer for the first uh, uh i don't know i think it might be 10 centimeters don't quote me on that but for the for you know up into the subtroch region uh, where you're entering, there's going to be a, a lateral bend to the nail to accommodate that. Okay, and and when we talk about retrograde nailing, uh, can you kind of give us like some of the key pearls? Like where is the starting point for this? Um, you know, and just kind of a little bit about the technique of this set. Okay, so good question. So let's so let's say we put J fits inside the medullary canal, the femur. Okay. Okay, he's, he's inside the canal. Let's say we push him up proximal. Where will he exit, anatomically speaking? Proximally along the piriformis fossa. Exactly correct. Very exactly, exactly. Okay, so, and that, that goes to the point we were just discussing. The piriformis fossa is collinear with the medullary canal. So the question is, well, let's say we took Jay and pushed him distally through the medullary canal, where would he exit at the level of the knee joint or at the distal femur? Like where would he come out? And that's basically the entry point. Agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I'll just tell you, the entry point happens to be collinear with the medial tibial spine and not at the center of the intercondylar notch. That's point number one. Or you may hear some arthroplasty surgeons tell you to uh, drill when they're doing a total knee using intramedullary referencing where the PCL insertion is. But if you're imaging for trauma uh, circumstances, it's collinear with the medial tibial spine, which is just medial to the uh, center of the intercondylar notch. That's your entry point. The other concept is, and this is a little bit confusing, but but it is what it is. There's a trajectory to your entry point. Like at the at the proximal aspect, if you're going anagrade, there's no trajectory because you're just aiming 
you know, down, it's a straight shot and you're, you're constrained in a good way by the piriformis fossa and the proximal femur. Like you can't really go to medial, go to lateral, you're going to perforate the canal. So you're, you're forced to go down uh, a set path defined by the anatomy. Do you know what I mean by that? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so if you're going retrograde, you have you have a large metaphyseal region, so you can have a trajectory that's basically whatever you want, and that's bad. Okay, so the the basically you're going at an angle of about eighty one degrees. And that's an angle off the entry point. So your, your entry point wire and a line across uh, the distal femoral condyles. So if you drew a line tangential to the condyles, your entry point should be 81 degrees. The lateral angle should be 81 degrees to that. You may also hear it as nine degrees off the perpendicular which is sort of, it's confusing and, you know, you may need to draw it out for it to make sense, but 81 degrees off a line tangential to the femoral condyles. Okay. Now, now there, I had to have a quick question on that because actually I'm on joints right now and I was actually just reading uh, not too long ago about the, the femoral axis and, and then. Oh boy. Oh boy. That's, <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. Oh that's man. And just really quick on that number, 89 and 9 degrees. So, you know, the number... 81, 81 and 9 degrees. And the, the number 9 degrees um, was significant because they were saying the axis of the femur is about 6 degrees valgus. But then now if you go down to the transepicondylar uh, region or the, super, or the condylar region, there's another 3 degrees of valgus there making the entire degrees, you know, 9 degrees. Is that kind of the same... Um, no, 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 no that's, that's confusing. No, it, it's, it's different. Um, and it, it, you know, to be honest, it, it takes a while to really understand all those numbers. If you're excited or motivated for deformity, like I am, it, it's a whole different language. So it really has to do when you guys can look it up or the viewers could, could look it up. It's, we're talking about the anatomic lateral distal femoral angle, the ALDFA uh, versus what's called the mechanical lateral distal femoral angle. And what you are referring to is what's called the AMA, the um, anatomic mechanical angle. And that's the difference between the mechanical and the anatomic axis, the femur, which typically is about six degrees in valgus. Hmm. But I, I don't really want to get into it more because it's 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 very confusing, right? Especially if you don't you're not looking at pictures of it, right? 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 Okay. Yeah, we was about to go off into a whole another another side of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's, but but the point you know the point is, and again, that's why I prefer anagrade. You could see if you, and again, Cole and Jay, I guess, and all the viewers out there. Is it a viewer or some? What do you call a person? Listeners. Listeners. Okay, all the listeners. If you want to do the surgery properly, which nail requires more thinking? 
Well, just kind of going from what you've been given, does it sound like the retrograde would, would <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sure. The retrograde's giving you, giving you I, I'm not going to swear, but the retrograde's giving you a headache. Right. You're getting a headache from how the hell do I get this entry point and trajectory uh, done properly in, in a, in a, in a, in a, distal femur that has a big metaphyseal region and using a c-arm that i can't see i can't see the medullary canal because it's too far proximal so i actually don't know where to aim my wire to go into the femoral canal right you you could deviate a couple degrees Mm. and so let me ask that so so say for some of the more distal non-articular femur fractures um to control that distal frat, the distal piece, you still would you still prefer going anter anterograde versus retrograde? No, no. If it's if it's a distal fracture where my my fixation distally is going to be compromised or you know I'm not going to feel comfortable, then no, I'll go preferably for a retrograde nail because I just think it's a better construct. If not, uh, some sort of plate fixation, plate and screw fixation. Okay. And and like when I say that, I don't know, you know, it's not not distant to the point where it's involved in the joint, but I was just I, I know we we're kind of talking about mid shaft fractures, but I, I want the fracture to kind of be down there, and I just want to know, are you still you still tend to go? Sound like you're saying that you're more likely to head towards retrograde at that point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's true. That's good. Uh, let me see. And I think the only other thing that we just wanted to talk on. Can you speak on? going ringed versus non-ringed. I know there are some difference in opinions on that as well. Um, to my knowledge, um, reamed nails would be the standard. I don't know of any one of my colleagues that would ever do an unreamed uh, nail. Okay. Sounds good. I, right. I don't know. I guess maybe... Uh, you know, like just to keep it simple and... Yeah, I think the standard of care would be reamed nails. That goes for tibia and femur, mm-hmm. at least within my um, sort of friendship circle. You know, North American, talking about North American trauma surgeons. Right. And, and so really quickly on positioning, um, can you quickly go over it? Kind of how do you, what's your prefer, pre- preferred uh, position for, you know, doing these uh, femurs? My preferred is on uh, a radiolucent table, a uh, flat top table, uh, supine with a little bump under the buttock. Patients brought over to the side of the bed, and I use a ramp to elevate, you know, an elevator pillow, elevator ramp under the ipsilateral extremity. And then I have a sterile traction setup for intraoperative traction where I put a two millimeter wire in the distal femur, use a sterile rope over a traction bow, over a a pulley system that's also become sterile and uh, put like 15 pounds of weight at the end of the bed. That's my preference. Other positions you could do is a lateral position and you can use obviously a fracture table, which a lot of surgeons prefer. Okay, great, great, great. Never any manual traction? Uh, so I, I joke around with the residents. I like to, I like to have a civilized surgery where the, the residents are, I like to, I like to, I like it to be civilized in that 
the less the the surgeon or the residents are physically doing like for prolonged periods of time the better so i like to free up people's hands meaning i want to position the patient so that you know you don't have an assistant holding the leg yeah whether it's rotation or traction or a bending moment the whole time so I try to use, you know, bumps, traction, positioning pillows, et cetera, just to free up people's hands during the case. Just because, you know, it's it's irritating, but it, there's a fatigability to it. It's awkward and it's hard, it's hard to maintain during the entire case, right? Especially when you're imaging, you're going to a lateral, yeah. et cetera. Totally agree. I should have did my rotations with you as a fourth year. Yeah, you can come. <laughs> I'm in Canada. We're, we're more than welcome to uh more than welcome to come here. <laughs> And in patients that, you know, these polytrauma patients, you know, patients that have, you know, like lung contusions and, and you know, concomitant injuries, um, are you, what, what's kind of your, uh, your thought process behind, okay, we'll just, we'll just do an X fix for temporary stabilization versus we can just go ahead and, and insert a, you know, intramedullary rod at this point. Yeah. So, so there's a whole another that's a whole different topic in and of itself, tons of literature on that. Um, which I would encourage your listeners to to look into. Um, so basically, it comes down to still, unfortunately or fortunately, you have to talk to your uh, colleagues. And I'm talking about the anesthesia team, the general surgery team, the ICU team, this, potentially neurosurgery team to see how sick this patient is. And there's a lot of metrics or pra clinical parameters that uh, we can use to determine if you should go in or not. So I'll just say that. Um, I tend not to do an X fix. I think if the patient's really sick, uh, I think just skeletal traction in the ICU for a day or two or three is, is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes the X fixes are, are actually a lot harder to do properly than you think. Uh, it's again, it's not hard to put an X fix on a femur, but if you take an X-ray after the X fix and you see the femurs in two different time zones, you know, then what, <laughs> what actually have you done? And, you know, when you did the AO basic course, you realize how unstable, uh, a femur fracture is in an X fix yeah. because you're so far away even if you put the you know the bars very close to the skin, you're very far away from the bone. Mm. That's my bias. That's my bias. With that said, it's still very appropriate to put an, a temporary X fix on a femur fracture in certain 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 circumstances. I would say, such as, uh, let's say you had a very sick patient who couldn't get an eye nail but had a vascular injury, and you need to stabilize the bone. An X fix would work there. If you had a significant open fracture. Uh, an X fix would work there and still, still appropriate to use it as a temporizing uh, fixation. All right. I like it. I think this was a, a absolutely wonderful talk. I, I feel like it's going to be one of our tops. Stellar, stellar talk, guys. It's probably going to be number one. Just, you know, I can feel it. Keep me updated with the viewers, but it'll be number one. <laughs> I can feel it. Now, before Find you, you know what? I don't want to sound, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in Canada. I don't want to sound like Trump, not to talk about uh, politics here, but <laughs> I don't want to make to be too positive about the, uh, about the podcast, uh, but, but it's going to be phenomenal. All right. Yeah, be sounds great. good. But before we go, we always like to give our listeners a way 
to reach out to our host, or excuse me, our guests, if if there is different platforms that you have, such as social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, something like that, is there any way for our listeners to reach out to you, Dr. Bernstein? There is no way they can, unfortunately. I am not on social media. Um, I'm at McGill University in Montreal, uh, Canada. They can always look me up there, and uh, my email is uh, listed in our faculty section. Now, thank you all so much for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed it and learned something. And please, 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 if you haven't, please go and leave us a review. Give us a star rating or five stars, however much you think we're worth. Hopefully it's five stars. And follow us on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho. And you can also go to NailedItOrtho.com for the show notes. Okay. Uh, Y'all have a great day.